this podcast is brought to you by XChem Pharmaceuticals. Welcome to Hatch, where we interview the latest startups in and around Cambridge and Boston. I'm Heidi Legg with TheEditorial.com. Tonight, we're at the Venture Cafe at the Cambridge Innovation Center. My guest is Steve Kelly. He's the president of a robotics startup called Myomo. Steve is no amateur in the startup space, and tonight we're hoping to dig in with this serial entrepreneur to find out how companies are built and sold in his space, and most of all, here in Boston. You've had a good week. You had a, you've had a nice announcement. Do you want to tell us about what happened this week? Sure. The, um, uh, the announcement that came out was that a nonprofit called Soldier Socks uh, has agreed to um, fundraise to um, acquire Myomo's braces for veterans that don't have access to them uh, because they're too far away from the VA or, or for whatever reason. Can you tell me a little bit about how the um, device works? Because I read about the sensor and I was trying to understand what's it sensing. Is it sensing neural paths? Is it sensing my voice? How does it work? Sure. So, um, you know, it goes to the, um, the name of the company, Myomo, is short for Myomotion. And um, it was named after the first person who used it, who was a woman who'd had a stroke. Um, she couldn't move her arm, um, a common thing after a stroke. And so um, what the uh, MIT inventors came up with to address that was they used uh, surface electrodes, so they're non-invasive. Uh, think of them as um, uh, microphones that sit on the surface of the skin. And when you think about moving, your brain sends a signal down your spinal cord to your, to, to your nerves and makes your muscles contract. When that happens, a little bit of electrical noise gets thrown out by your muscles. And that's what the sensors pick up on. So as a brain-computer interface, what's nice about it is it's non-invasive. And so it picked up her signal, and she tried to move a little bit, and the braces moved her arm. And she was like, I love this. It's my own motion. And it's just sitting on her arm as if it's a blood pressure exactly. holder. Exactly. And it can tell that my brain is talking to my arm and telling me it's time to move it. Um, it can, it's not, um, I wouldn't say it's the smartest brain-computer interface. Um, so it, it doesn't know what your diagnosis is. All it knows is that it can hear a signal. And it can tell if you put out a lot of signal that it's going to move your arm fast, just like if you flex your muscle hard, you're going to, you know, rock it up, and it can tell if you put out a little bit of signal, then it will move a little bit or, or hold you in place. I immediately think, of course, of stroke victims um, and veterans who have uh, had injuries in battle. Is, are those the two groups you're looking at, or are there other people that I'm not aware of that are suffering with this all the time? Um, so like I say, it's, it's the, the nature of it is it doesn't know your diagnosis. So it's stroke, it's um, people with um, nerve damage after like um, automobile accidents and work accidents, um, progressive conditions like ALS, um, uh, spinal cord injury, pretty much anything that um, causes paralysis. What we find is that about 85% of the people, even though they look like they can't move at all, when we put this on them, they're able to move again. Well, a couple of questions I have is that um, soldier socks, looks like they're buying 120 
of your, um, it's called the MyoPro arm, is yes. that right? Yes. And so that's, that's significant in that they'll be trying it. Um, but how big is your market? 120 people isn't a lot of people. How big is the market in the U.S. for this sort of thing? Uh, sadly, it's pretty big. So it's, it's probably, you know, between uh, 1 and 5 million people that have this kind of paralysis for one reason or another. Um, the largest is, is stroke, but, um, you know, people who have um, had spinal cord injuries, nerve injuries, um, it, it all adds up to a pretty large market, unfortunately. I was curious in that the one way for me to get this, and the only way, is through my doctor. Um, I see this as a product that someone would just want to buy and be able to try on their own. Why do they have to go through the doctor for that? Is it the insurance cost? Um, uh, well, a couple of reasons. It's, um, it's a medical device, so it's registered with the FDA, and it's prescription required. Um, it is for reimbursement purposes. And, and also, um, the nature of the product, um, it's custom-made for each person. So... Um, it's something that to really have it work effectively as an assistive device, um, it really needs to just sit on your arm exactly and not migrate around and that sort of thing. So that lends itself to it being custom made. When I think about capital forces, I think the faster you can get to a market, the better. Um, in this case, that's one more barrier. Are you happier inside that where you have to go through the doctor or would you wish this was a device you could go buy like an iPhone? Uh, that's a good question. Um, it's a, it's a trade-off. Um, this is something that um, is fit on your body, and you you really need that to be done well and and properly. Um, so I think in in our case, it's really the the right way to go because it takes you down a path of of working with people who are really experts at what they do. Um, the folks in the Genius Bar at, at the Apple Store are really good at what they do too, but these people have, you know, medical um, diplomas. And it's a custom item. It's a custom item, right. Um, can you talk to us a little bit about the medical devices field, because you're our first interview on Hatch around the medical devices space. Sure. Can you tell us what it looks like in Boston and what you're seeing as trends? Uh, yeah, so Massachusetts is one of the leading states um, producing medical devices in the country. So this is a really um, kind of exciting place to be because you have all of the innovation that, you know, Boston and Massachusetts is known for, um, and you have the medical device expertise. Um, and Boston's also a healthcare national hub as well. International hub. International hub. Right. So, so it, it really creates kind of a, a melting pot in a lot of ways. Um, but in, in, in some ways, um, it's a challenge because in, um, in the healthcare system today, um, you can think of it sort of as cost gate. I mean, we used to spend, uh, we spend about $4 trillion a year on healthcare. So to put that in the in, state or in the country? In the country. So to put that in perspective, uh, that's a Germany a year, the GDP of Germany every year. Uh, it used to be a France a year. Now we dream of only spending a France a year, and next up would be a Japan. So not surprisingly, there's a lot of focus on how do you manage that cost curve down, um, and technology um, 
you know, it's often kind of in the crosshairs of that where um, dampening down the diffusion of new technology is seen as a way to contain cost, which I don't think is always, you know, the case. Do you feel like this product is going to have um, an accelerated effect once you hit a certain group? I think that, um, you know, with, um, with the regulatory aspects of medical devices, you don't have the, the sort of viral aspect that you have with, like, consumer apps or, or that Media sort of properties. thing. Yeah. Um, it, so it's all about kind of building momentum. And once you become the standard of care, then you just gain that momentum. A lot of startups are just trying to figure out at this stage how they get their funding. There's over 700 companies in the CIC here mm -hmm. at Kendall Square. How did you get your funding, and what have you learned and that you would change or do differently? So the initial funding for this came from um, a grant inside of MIT from the Dishpande Center. And then... Um, you know, uh, angel investors, and and now um, venture capital investment. Um, what have I learned? How are those venture capitalists? <laughs> no, venture capital, um, you know, is is sort of, um, um, you, you know, it's sort of like um, the right tool for the right job, if you will, right? So um, I've I've always had good experience with with venture capitalists. Um, I think that the thing that I think I've learned from this is um, is really more on the sort of um, medical device side of this, where there are so many. For me, you know, I have a tech entrepreneur background, so I was in you know new spaces with regulatory, new spaces with reimbursement, and the thing that I learned was that um, the only thing worse than no expert is one expert, because when your one expert takes you off the cliff you don't even know your feet have left the ground. So it's really um, helpful whether you're talking about IP or regulatory or reimbursement or I think anything that's critical, sort of mission critical to the business, you want to have your go-to expert, but then it's also really helpful to have somebody who is in sort of an oversight role to, that you can validate with. But when you're starting as a startup, you're just sort of desperately trying to drink from the fire hose and get all the work done. And if you have one expert, you're just like, oh, I'm so psyched I have this one expert mm -hmm. who's willing to spend time and be passionate about this. And you're saying get more people in the room. How do you do that? Well, look around, you know, the venture cafe, there's a lot of people in the room, right? So it's just, it's part of it is networking and part of it is just that incremental thing of, I, w I was in a, a meeting today. Um, you know, somebody's working through uh, um, uh, investment sort of thing, and they need a lawyer. So who should they talk to? And somebody's like, well, you know, Bob's a really good lawyer. And somebody else says, well, I've got these three lawyers. Talk to all three. And then, you know, the one you don't pick, keep a relationship with. And it's just, you know, good validation. At what stage did you get yourself advisory boards? You're a serial entrepreneur. I think this is your fourth startup. Mm -hmm. What point do you get advisory boards? Um, I don't think you can start early enough to get an advisory board. Um, and similar with a board of directors. I think that um, you know people tend to underestimate the role of both. So advisory boards have a lot of um, flexibility where I could sign everybody up here in the room and then I might pull everybody in one for one-on-ones 
or I might take the three of you who are experts in media and you know have one meeting and that sort of thing. Um, so I think advisory boards give you leverage as a startup. You get you get networks, you get expertise, you get pattern matching. Are you pattern Are you padding it with your friends? Is that what an advisory board is? It's sort of those close to you that you respect in a professional way. Usually not. Usually advisory boards are, are people that um, you're in a new space and you need you need you need depth. So you you get somebody to sign up. You can only have so many people on your board of directors, but you can have a lot more advisors. What's a board of director to you in in a different way than an advisor? Uh, so a board of directors um, is really interesting because these are the people that you go into war with, right? And um, you want people that you can have, you know, to some extent, knock down, drag out fights with, but will back you a thousand percent when the decision gets made. And you need that mix of, of people who, um, you know, are kind of not under the tent as it were, that can come in and bring that fresh perspective. I think you're, like, you may be right, but you may be dead right, or you're just way too um, focused in on this. You need to pull back and consider that the economy's booming or the economy's headed into recession or whatever the topic is. If we were going to write you a check today, where would you put that money? What do you wish you were doing more with this company or be able to leverage? Well, first, where I um you know, we're a medical device company, and the coin of the realm is research. So we're investing quite a bit right now in research, and I would take that check and I'd put it towards research. And what are you researching? Which topics are you looking at? Um, so it's really about proving the, um, the functional benefit, the, the real-world benefit that you get from taking an arm that's immobilized and all of a sudden restoring the ability to move that and then what can you do? You can, you can push up more safely, you can... There's a whole bunch of, um, of researchy type outcome measures that you kind of break down that involve can you pick up a cup, can you get it to your face, can you turn on a light switch, things like that. So it's, you know, kind of working through those studies, gathering that evidence, getting that published so that you can say, yes, there's there's peer-reviewed publications proving X, Y, and Z. If you were going to put yourself at a certain stage in the trajectory of startup, where do you see, where do you think you are right now? Hmm. Um, well, so we're pretty far along because we're in the market. Um, we are past the IP stage. We're past the regulatory stage. Um, in addition to the soldier socks, the VA. Uh, has approved this across their 1,700 locations. Um, you know, private insurance like Blue Cross is paying for this on an individual basis, and we're um, in discussions with Medicare. You know, for what they want to see to to reimburse it. So we're we're kind of in the market right now and headed, I think, towards the scale up stage. What will be your exit strategy if you're going to look in a crystal ball? Oh boy, that's a tough one. Um, I. I gave up thinking I was smart enough a long time ago to um, to know what the exit strategy is. I've had companies that I thought we were going the long road on that got acquired after 18 months, and here I am with Myomo, and it's you know eight years old, and it's still you know kind of moving along, moving in the right direction. But I couldn't even guess it when Myomo gets to an exit. 
In the editorial.com, a question that I always ask people in the Visionary Series, and since you've been around for a while, we'll sort of let you cross-pollinate the two, because I think you have that experience. I like to ask people, what public opinion would you like to change? I would like to change the public opinion that technology is a cost driver to healthcare. Um, about 65 to 75 percent of the cost of healthcare is labor. And as far as I know, technology is pretty effective at improving productivity and helping people do more. So um, I think that, you know, getting things reworked so that um, there's, there's more support for innovation in medical devices and new technology as a way to not only deal with the cost issues, but also every day 10,000 baby boomers turn 65. They're going to do that for the next 10 years. That's 70 million people. 1.7 million people in Massachusetts. And there's no way that the existing model works. Which isn't a surprise because I'm at the tail end of the baby boom. My brother's 10 years older than me. Everything that I walked up to was totally different from what he first approached him. You know, when he bought his first place to live, I don't think there was a condo. When he had his first kid, there wasn't the daycare set up there is today. I mean, it just goes on and on. Right, changes so fast. Yeah, so I don't know how the baby boomers will deal with aging, but it won't be in nursing homes, I don't think. You couldn't find 70 million nursing home beds. I think that the Gen X and the uh, millennials who have parents with that money better... <laughs> better expect that money's going to healthcare because every interview I do I'm hearing about more and more technology and we know that the baby boomers have always been very early adopters so well, I'll so be interested to see what happens. Yeah so that's a big role that I see for technologies like myomos is um, if you if you dig into the numbers the answer is keep people home because home is the number one quality of life it's where everybody wants to be and it's the lowest cost of care. So if you can take something like my almost product, put it on somebody who's, you know, had an injury, and now they can do things at home independently, they get to stay. I mean, I've literally um, worked with people that we need to get them this brace because if they can't, they need to move to assisted living. Before and, and, we... and that wasn't somebody in their 70s or 80s. That was somebody in their 30s. Before we um, wrap up the interview, can you tell us a human element story? It's a chance for you to sort of really sell your product and tell us um, somebody a story where you were really moved by how it affected them. Oh, gosh. That's tough to pull together one story. I um, worked with a, uh, saw a person yesterday who got fitted up with this, and they asked him to um, turn the faucet on. And without the brace, he's just, you know, like swinging his arm, almost jumping. Right, so to kind of jump up and swing to get to the faucet, and he puts the brace on and he reaches out and he turns the faucet on and turns it off. Um, you know, when I um, was working at this and it first spun out of MIT, I'm in my office and I hear um, this woohoo, and I'm thinking, oh boy, what's everybody doing out out in the out in the um, office area? And I get up and walk out, and this woman had had the brace on and she was touching her nose and every time she did she was like woohoo it was the <laughs> first awesome. time she'd been able to do that that's awesome one of the things with Hatch we would like to do is um, do a little quiz so are you ready we're going to do a little trivia here um, given all your MIT connections 
Can you tell me who invented the Polaroid camera? Ed Edward Land. You're right. He attended Harvard, never earned a degree, maybe the best remembered for the instant camera, but he was a prolific inventor, second only to Thomas Edison in the number of patents received. Land began experimenting with polarizing light after leaving school, and while still in his 20s, invented the plastic sheet light polarizer. Nicely done. Nice. It's fun to have you on the program, well, Steve. thanks for having me. Thanks for being here. This is Heidi Legg with Hatch. I'd like to thank XChem for sponsoring this podcast, and we look forward to bringing you another interesting startup around Boston and Cambridge in the next few weeks. Good night.